0: Aristotle once said, knowing yourself is the beginning of all wisdom. Now, I know, Aristotle said a lot of things, and some of those things are hard to unpack, and some of them aren't. This one, I think it falls under the aren't category. This one's easy. It just means if you're in touch with yourself, you'll be in touch with the rest of the world. Knowing oneself is where knowledge begins. Okay, we get it, right? But to be that person, To be that wise, well, that takes time. For me, it took about 49 years. Somewhere, I'm serious, actually. Somewhere before I turned 50, I got it. It just clicked. Sure, it would have been great to have had that awareness at 19, but at 19, no way. I was not open to that. I was chasing girls and REM b-sides and knowledge. If it was in a five-foot range from me, it just disintegrated. Long story short, Some of us get that wisdom of the self early. Some of us get it, like me, in middle age. And some of us never get it at all. My guest today, he got it early. And though it's not the main thing in this interview, it's a pretty cool glimpse into being young and self-assured. And trust me, he was both. So much so that he stared down one of the most powerful people in music history, and he said, oh, I see you want me to turn left? I'll be turning right. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out.
1: When the snows come and the wind blows cold, will you hold me like you'll never last? You kiss me so sweetly and promise you'll love me so. Cause I have wandered through the mountains, I have searched the streets below. And all I ever really wanted is someone to hold me and to keep me from the cold. And when the night falls, and you're sleep,
0: I'll watch over you. That is the music of my guest today on the program, Curtis Tigers. Heart. Let me tell you a little bit about Curtis Tigers. Raised in Idaho and California, I'm guessing Curtis Tigers is likely comfortable in the snow and the sun. By the way, I don't really know if Curtis Steigers is comfortable in the snow, but I'm guessing, you know, being raised in Idaho, there probably was some skiing. For the purposes of this introduction, let's just let's just go with it. Musically, he's equally as versatile as what I'm hypothesizing. Trained in clarinet and saxophone, Steigers loved blues and punk rock as a kid, but found himself gravitating to jazz clubs as he came of age. He graduated from high school and hightailed it to New York pursuing his rock and roll dream. But it was jazz that made that dream come true. His debut album for Arista went multi-platinum. He appeared on the rather massive Bodyguard soundtrack. And after putting out a few jazz records, he knocked out Let's Go Out Tonight, which covered tracks by everyone from Steve Earle to Richard Thompson. Over the course of his career, Steigers has worked with Elton John, Prince, Joe Cocker, and Julia Fordham. He's put out nearly 15 solo albums, including his brand new one, This Life. He's had top 10 hits on the Billboard charts, and he's played shows all over the world. This Life revisits Steiger's hits over the years, and his reinterpretations are refreshing and compelling. He plays with finesse and soul, and not only is he unreasonably talented, he's a blast to talk to. So let's talk to him. Here we go, me and Curtis Stiger's having a conversation. Right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast.
2: in in the uh, Kaiser Hospital on uh, on uh, uh, Sunset Boulevard uh, or Hollywood Boulevard. I can't remember which one, but um, yeah, but we lived in Temple City. We lived east of L.A. just a little bit. Um, But that, you know, I like to say I was born in Hollywood, California, because that makes me seem vapid and and shallow. (laughs) Uh, But uh, eventually, um, uh, my my mother was divorced uh, from my stepdad between second and third grade. And so from fourth grade on, uh, I I lived in Boise, Idaho, and I was very pissed off when we moved to Boise, Idaho, because I lived I lived in L.A., you know, and actually at that time we were in Whittier. But my grandfather was there and he loved to take me to Disneyland and Knott's Berry Farm and all these great you know, he was he was a great grandfather. And uh, so. I, I what did I want to move to Boise for? It was just, you know, it's just a, it was the sticks. Then I discovered skiing and, you know, uh, everything else. And, and I, I love Idaho. Now I'm back here after having lived in New York for 16 years. I I moved back from New York in uh, 2003 with a with a wife and kid um, now an ex-wife and uh, and the kid. But uh, um, I'm, it's, it's nice here. It's a good place to live. It's, um, it's quieter. It's not nearly as quiet as it, uh, quiet as it used to be, um, but uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a good home base.
0: Yeah, I, I was thinking about you and I was thinking about how we're, we're the same age. And I remember when you arrived on the scene, right? Mm-hmm. And I, what was so cool about you is that you looked like, because we came from a very tribal time where you could look at someone, you knew what records they listened to. Right. And you looked like you were in all my favorite bands, but you weren't playing the music that I thought you'd be playing. And so I was like, oh, it felt like you had infiltrated the system. Like you'd gone, you can look at me, but you can't pinpoint me. And I really Uh, liked that about you, that that was such a cool thing. That's been both my blessing and a
2: curse for my whole career is that, you know, you can't pinpoint me. And, uh, you know, my publicists and my record companies and my managers are like, could you just could you just do one thing for christ's sake so we can sell it but uh, um no such luck yeah i well i had long hair i mean i moved to new york in 87 and i got a record deal in 90. um and by the time when i moved to new york in 87 i had short i always had short kind of buzz cut hair i um i just i I kind of came up uh, both as a a jazz musician. I mean, I like, I I love all kinds of music, but I played drums in a punk rock band when I was in high school. So I always just had really short hair. And uh, I moved to New York and I, I, I just kind of stopped cutting my hair. I couldn't afford a good haircut. And so I just let it grow. And eventually it got long. And right then I got a record deal and they took that photo of that, you know, for that first album cover with me with long. I had I had brown hair just like I do now, except most of it's gray now. But uh, I had long brown hair, but the, the photographer who's very good, a friend of mine, Richard Corman, took took the photos with a lot of kind of orange and yellow light, so it made it look a little blonder. They teased it up a bit you know um but it was it was long hair by the way it was not a mullet don't don't ever don't ever say mullet around me no um anyway um and uh and and so i've i've basically been living down that long hair photo for for my whole career they it immediately put me at least with the music that i made if you listen to the album too they kind of popped me into this michael bolton uh uh, uh, you know michael bolton jr thing. And, you know, I wanted to be compared to, you know, no offense to Michael Bolton, um, but I wanted to be compared to John Hyatt and Bonnie Raitt and and Al Green and the people that I was, you know, was sort of trying to emulate as a songwriter. But uh, it just was a time where you looked at somebody and you we're still that way, although it's harder to peg somebody because there are just so many tribes now, you know, there were tribes back then. Right. But but, uh, they just, you know, they looked at me and they said, oh, he goes here. (laughs) And once I realized that, that, that was when I started kicking at the stall, you know, that's when I started realizing I wanted to break out of that. And I wanted to, okay, I didn't quite give them the impression that I've grown up listening to soul music and singer songwriters um, and jazz music and the blues uh, on that first record. It, It, I got, I had some hits, things, things went very well. I got to be on the tonight show a bunch of times and Letterman and, and, tour the world with my heroes, but but now I'm going to do I'm going to keep trying to do that thing that I set out to do. And that's when I ran into I ran afoul of Clive Davis, the president of uh, Arista Records, who said, No, I want you to do other people's songs and I want you to I want you to work with middle of the road pop producers. And we just bashed heads for three years. My second record uh, didn't come out until 95, like four and a half years after my first record. And by then, all pop radio stations were playing Alanis Morissette and Nirvana. And, uh, you know, Alice in Chains, which was great. Uh, you know, if you like to listen to music uh, and I loved listening to, to music, I, I, I loved that all those bands. But but I couldn't get on the radio anymore. So I had to I had to um, I had to kind of refocus and figure out who it was or who I was as an artist and who I wanted to be without Clive Davis and guys in suits breathing down my neck. and that's what led me back to jazz music which i had grown up studying anyway that was the fastest encapsulation of my first 10 years in the record business (laughs) that
1: you
2: could possibly imagine i've been doing this a lot over the years
0: well the thing i I i'm going to check your levels really quickly chris i'm just making sure i can hear i have you okay there we go. That's perfect. Right a little there. Closer. All right. Uh, yeah. yeah. The the thing about it though is that when you say you ran a foul of Clive Davis, that sounds like a dangerous thing to do. Did you did you feel like uh-oh, like this is not because I at that age, when we would have been the exact same age, I would have been very deferential. I like that you had the nerve to do something like that, because that's not a guy that you want to run a foul of. Um
2: yeah, it if it hadn't been my heart and soul that I was fighting for. I may have been a little, uh, I may, may have, uh, I may have fought a little less hard. Um, I just knew that, I mean, I live for my music. That's the thing. That's what I, you know, that's who I am. And, uh, uh, you know, when your face is on that record cover and your name is on the label, um, you don't want it to just sound like something that you kind of are okay with. Um, I just didn't believe in it. And, um, that, you know, I mean, there's a there's a page in Clive Davis's autobiography that came out a few years ago, and he, he very kindly actually wrote about me at all because we 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 parted fairly rough <laughs> and uh, uh, but he wrote a, a page and said, you know, that Curtis Stigers was one of the ones that got away for me. You know, I um he sh- I felt he should have been a really big star. Um, but now he has a career where he plays jazz festivals So he was very he was he was very kind, he said. Curtis didn't listen to what I say so he was stupid but he was very good. So I mean you know <laughs> but I don't know I I I couldn't I couldn't look myself in the mirror. I mean I, honestly I I couldn't sing the songs uh, that that he wanted me to sing. I just couldn't. It was like I mean I've heard stories about Tony Bennett um you know being in the studio with Mitch Miller being his uh, his uh a record producer and mitch miller wanting him to sing songs that he didn't want to sing and him going and throwing up he it made him so sick to have to do these songs i get that you know to, uh, you know i i just i couldn't do it and uh i i did dismantle a pop career um i didn't uh, i still don't think that i was wrong because that's who I am as an artist. And there are people who um fit that mold better than I do. The 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 sort of cookie cutter put him in there with a with a big hit pop song and a big pop producer and then uh, hits. Although, I mean, I have to say, Clive is Clive was good at that, but he didn't get it every time. I mean, I saw being behind the scenes, I saw the the very high percentage of acts and songs. Um, that went out there, singles that went out there that just got disappeared. I mean, we know about Whitney Houston and we know about Taylor Dane, but we don't know about those other 50 acts that, you know, did the same thing and said, yes, Clive. And uh, anyway, I haven't talked about Clive in a long time because I found um, I I sounded really bitter um, back in the, in the late nineties and, and early aughts when I would talk about him. And so I made a, I made a pact with myself to, to not really discuss that now. Now, looking back, you know, I mean, it's so long ago, it's 30 years ago or 25 years ago. Um, I, I it's kind of funny, it's kind of like, all oh, right, well, I was, you know, I, I did what I had to do. I, you know, I was, a I was, I was, a I was a troubled artist and, uh, Great. The problem is I never got the reputation for being a troubled artist. I, I, I kept, I still, um, you know, I'm still trying to get, you know, a bad reputation so that I can sell some records for God's sake. You know I mean? I, I, I want to be Neil Young, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm Karen Carpenter or something. I don't know. I, I, that's, that's been my, um, the, the biggest frustration is just as i've evolved i've made a lot of different kinds of records i've recorded songs by elvis costello and and uh um you know uh, ron Sexmith and steve earl and and uh, uh you know I'm, i do weird things that's what my career has been about is making kind of weird records that don't fit in any genre but i'm still i'm still kind of stuck in that in that uh in that hole of oh, he's that pop singer with the long hair. And I did that in 1991 and it was fun. And I toured for a year and then I moved on. So that's uh that's again my blessing and my curse is uh I I'm I, I have a versatility and a and a lot of different interests. You know, I I I still uh I still like to sit around and play my acoustic guitar and sing uh Willie Nelson songs.
0: But your versatility is is like my favorite thing about you, and I think that you know you talking about being in a punk band at 16 the the through line that leads us to Clive Davis is sort of like you kicking back against him sort of is a nod to your punk rock roots right I, I, like a, I guess a punk so. would do that i mean that's exactly what a punk would do
2: yeah, I guess so and that was, you know, and that was also I mean and also a jazzer, you know. I mean, when I was a kid, I didn't want to I didn't want to listen to Ario Speedwagon and and uh, um, you know, all the all the kind of mainstream hit bands that were happening on the radio. I wanted to be, you know, my little tribe, we wanted to find something different. So, you know, we we got into jazz, we got into prog rock, and then suddenly I heard um, you know, uh, uh the Sex Pistols. I heard uh, uh the Pretenders and Elvis Costello. I heard uh um, the stranglers, you know, I mean, when I heard the stranglers, it was like, oh yeah, this is, this is bad. This is music. Even my mom, who's a rock and roller is not going to get, is not going to like. So, um, yeah, it was. And so, and, and there is that part of me, that's a, a bit of a rebel. Um, uh, but really again, it was just down to, I couldn't do it. I couldn't make music that I didn't love. And I, I, I had always done that. I grew up, playing music because I loved it. No one made me. No one pushed me into it. I was always looking for another instrument to play. I started on clarinet and then I moved to saxophone. I also played the drums. Somebody gave me a guitar when I was a kid. Um, And I was always I always wanted to do more stuff. I always wanted to. Wow. Oh, alt country. Cool. Okay, um, uh, you know, rhythm and blues. Wow. You know, jump swing. I mean, all these things turned me on and it didn't occur to me to just stay in one thing both as a listener and as an artist um and it again it's it's not i'm not trying to say that i was super cool because you know because of that because it you know it 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 destroyed a pop career in the process um but it, it's what I love it's it changing and growing and evolving it's it's what I love and I play music that i love. Regardless of what happens, I've managed to create a career as a touring artist. Um, uh, at least until this uh, funny little virus showed up and screwed everything up. Yeah. I'm I managed to create a a career as a touring artist that, you know, I can I can pay my mortgage and put my daughter through college and uh, you know buy a lot of uh, kibble for the dogs and uh, you know I don't I don't make the the millions that I might have if uh, you know, those pop songs that Clive picked out for me had had worked but, uh, um, you know, it, that's okay. It, I, I, I make a living as a musician, and as a as a person who stands on stage and tells stories to people in, in music, uh, and I'm that's a really lucky thing.
0: And I also feel like you know I love George Michael but I love the misfits and I feel like there's, uh. when I listen to the misfits I hear Elvis when I listen to George Michael I hear all these other things. And I, I found that whether you're talking about the stranglers or the pistols, or there's all these musical through lines where it's all connected anyway. And I feel like you got that. You like Steve Earl is a punk,
2: right? Sure. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, and back to the stranglers. I mean, now when I listen to stranglers, I was like, Oh yeah, I hear some Rolling Stones there. I mean, you know, they, a lot of it goes back to the Rolling Stones. Yeah. Uh, I, I always find in punk rock. I mean, even the, the sex pistols, they don't really sound scary anymore. They sound like rock. Yeah. I just heard, uh, um i just heard something from uh uh, who's the guitar player from the new york dolls Uh, i just flew out of my head anyway i just heard something on the radio and i thought is that the rolling stones and no it was like you know one of the lead one of the inventors of punk rock oh johnny Uh, thunders uh, yeah sorry i heard it i heard a song by johnny thunders a live track by johnny thunders on the um on the radio and and it was like as it started, I was like, "Wow, that's the Rolling Stones are sounding really kind of edgy right there." And I realized, "Oh no, <laughs> that's not the Stones," but uh, it all comes from somewhere, doesn't it? You know, I right. mean, pop uh, pop music has so many so many uh, little strains that that have that have have led into uh, what it is. And by pop music, I, I mean that in the in the massive overall sense. You know, including blues and rhythm and blues and soul and. I love that. I love digging back in and finding the history of music. Uh, 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 Little Steven, you know, uh, Stevie Van Zandt is great at doing that. I listen to his uh, his radio show uh, sometimes. I love it when his voice comes on and he just he just like picks apart where a song came from and where the band came from and who they were influenced by. And I, I love that it's a it's a that's what music is for me. It's a little puzzle. It's something I was the kid who just I was at the record store right after school in fifth grade and sixth grade. I was at the record store just uh, you know, going through the the, the racks, looking, looking at, at album covers and looking at the back and reading who produced it. And I mean, I didn't even know what a producer was when I was a kid, but damn, I
0: wanted to know, you know? Well, that was where I think it all started to blend together. It's somewhere in the late 80s where guys who liked metal also liked the Cure and mm. The Smiths and Roxy Music and U2. And ah. that was where those those tribal barriers started to become more porous. And I, I always really appreciated the fact that um, a guy who loved Metallica, especially here in the Bay Area, um, could also talk to you all day about REM. And it was like, ah. oh, so there is a kind of, there's a porousness to, you know, and the way you're talking, like the way a real musician talks, where it's like, you see all these through lines, whereas yeah. the business of music is like, no, stay in your lane.
2: Yeah, yeah. Musicians listen to music. L- musicians <laughs> don't listen to a genre, or you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, Metallica's great, and so is Charlie Parker. I mean, you know, and why wouldn't you just put them on back to back? That's uh yeah. Musicians tend to, I mean, certainly, uh, you know, a, a metal musician is going to play metal for the most part, but you know, they're they're going to listen to they're going to listen to Bach. They're going to listen to, uh, uh, you know, they're going to hear a Patsy Klein song and think, oh, yeah, man. That girl could
0: sing, yeah. And also, Chet Baker behaviorally was far more punk rock than the oh, Sex Pistols.
2: He was a he was a mess. Poor he old a Chet. Mess. He was a he was beautiful. One of my favorite singers. One of my favorite musicians ever. And oh my God, just as a he 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 was a punk from the word go. You know.
0: Was there ever for you when you realized that the pop career? was like you said you dismantled a pop career. Was yeah. there ever a crisis of faith for you in terms of where you were as a as an artist? Were you sort of like, do I were you feeling kind of unmoored ever? Or did you feel pretty grounded always?
2: That's a good question. I mean both. I was always grounded because I knew I had, I knew I had the music. I knew I knew how to do it. Um I I knew in my heart I would figure it out. I'd figure out a way to make a living. But I was scared. I mean, um, after I left Arista in the in the sort of mid late 97, I guess, 90s. Yeah, 97. And I went to Columbia. And um, by then I had I had recorded most of what would be my first jazz record, which didn't come out until 2001. And I did that at Arista. I, I made a jazz record. Clive Davis heard it and said, what am I going to do with this? And I said, well, like I've been asking you for the last several years. Drop me. And he he agreed to um, Columbia Records. Um, my original A&R man, Mitchell Cohen, was at Columbia at that point, And he heard that I was free and they signed me. Uh, uh, Columbia signed me. They bought that jazz record. I went over there. I um, I, I made another pop record, which was kind of my singer songwriter record uh, brighter days. That was my third album. No one heard it. It it, it. it it there were a lot of strange things that happened behind the scenes and it just it was stillborn. It was dead and um, I uh, that was maybe the most scary point when I realized, OK, I'm I, I'm done at Columbia that didn't work um they gave me back that album they even gave me back my jazz record which was very nice i owned both of those records when i left columbia but i i really didn't know what i was going to do but i knew that i wanted to play jazz music i knew that i had I, I went to college with high school, college for that. I studied it. You know, it was my thing. I was a jazz singer and I was doing it quietly behind the scenes when I was a, you know, a pop artist uh, in, in air quotes. Um, I was doing little tours in Denmark, things like that. And I knew I wanted I just said, look, I've got this jazz record. I want to I want to take it to a little jazz label. I want to put it out and I want to become. A touring artist instead of a recording, you know, a person who relies on record sales and advances to 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 pay the bills. Um, and what I did, and um this this still kind of chokes me up. I called Michael Brecker. And Michael Brecker was one of the greatest saxophone players in the history of recorded music. He, you know, he and his brother Randy Brecker were the Brecker brothers. Michael played with Paul Simon, uh, you know, Paul Simon used to feature, used to have a Michael Brecker feature in all each of his concerts. He played with Joni Mitchell on, in that amazing band with, with uh, Pat Metheny and Lyle Mays and uh, Jaco Pastorius and Don Elias. He was a God and he happened to be a friend of mine. We'd met, we'd met um, when Clinton was inaugurated. I was amazingly lucky um, to be placed in this big saxophone choir with Jerry Mulligan and uh, Michael Brecker and David Sanborn and Tom Scott and Grover Washington, Jr. And on and on. It was an amazing weekend where I just got to hang out with my my saxophone heroes. Uh, and Michael and I became friends because of that. And I would I would just check in with him every now and then. And we'd see, see each other in Japan. And I called Michael Brecker. This is a long story. I called Michael Brecker in I guess in 2000, after that record had croaked and I was thinking, I just said, look, this is what I want to do. I've got this jazz record. I want to, I just want to leap. I want to get out of the pop world. And I just want to, I want to make the music I want to make from now on. Do you think I can do this? And he said, Oh yeah, the water's, the water's warm jump in, let's go. So, and to get that, um, to get that, that go-ahead from someone that I had grown up idolizing and who was a dear friend—it—it it, it was a huge thing for me. That day changed my life, and it was just a phone—a phone call, and uh, um, I—I owe—I owe my artistic happiness to that moment. Uh, you know, I just decided to—to to make a full turn and just, just only make music that I loved, no matter what anybody said. And even when I was on a jazz label, Concord Records, all through the the aughts and and the teens, up until just a couple of years ago, every time the the president of the record company would come to me and say, you know what you ought to do? Why don't you work with so-and-so and and do this and this and this? And I'd say, all right, yeah, that sounds fun. I'd love to make a record with Don Was. That'll cost about $15,000 a song, let's do it. And the president of the record company would say, Yeah, you go ahead and do what you were going to (laughs) do. And I would, Um, you know, because they I mean, what I did is I I. One of the ways that I created this sort of creative artistic cocoon for myself was by learning how to make records for absolutely no money. I go into the record. I go into the studio with five guys and uh, three days and um, a bunch of tape and we just record for three days guerrilla style. I'm up, I get up, I get up at you know seven in the morning and I go to bed at two in the morning and I do that for three days. And then when the dust settles, I listen, I figure out what I need to add to it. And it's usually very little. Usually it's just like, OK, you know, I, I didn't sing that line the way I wanted it. Let's fix that. Um, the saxophone sounded crappy because, you know, the, the, when you have two mics in a room, it just ends up really throwing everything off. They go out of phase. And so a lot of times I'll I'll re-record the saxophone after the fact. I mean, I, I hate my saxophone playing. Don't tell anybody, but I just uh, I've never liked I just I. There's so many great saxophone players in the world. When I hear my saxophone playing, I think. Gah! So I always I always fix the sax. Anyway, a long story shorter or a long story longer. It I make records for nothing. Um, and that works for, uh, you know, that works. It, it allows me to just do what I want to do. Um, the, a record company is happy to come up with that small amount of money uh, for me to just go in and do it and, and deliver them what I think. Is the perfect piece of art for me, uh, not for not for radio or not whether it's jazz radio or pop radio or whatever, but for me. And um, there are some people that like what I do. It's a small group of people, but they they come to my shows and they'll buy my CDs, especially if I'll autograph them. And uh, I I I'm very happy being a um, a cottage industry. It, it it
0: works nicely for me but again your three-day approach and doing it for cheap um is again is again that is a punk rock ethos that gets back to that punk rock stuff i'm a punk rocker damn it that's what i'm trying to say curtis you're a <laughs> punk rocker you
2: <laughs> they just don't
0: know it yeah they're gonna find out now
2: yeah yeah i mean i think punk rock bands probably spend more money on records than i do that's for sure but uh, it it also it just feels right i mean I grew up playing live music, I grew up, uh, you know, uh, playing on stages in clubs and parks and uh, at church and whatever, you know, I, I play music, uh, you know, in time, you know, in real time. And so the idea of, you know, those first couple of records that I made took the first record took three months, the second record took well, you know, a couple of years because because the because Clive Davis kept making me re-record it and and um, and we would we'd spend two days on guitars, you know, okay, um I'm gonna, you know, we like what he played yesterday, but let's erase all that and do it again. I hated that. I hated I don't like being inside that long, you know, I mean, studios, there's no natural light. there's no air, you know, you so the idea of just getting in, making the music like it's a live gig, tweaking a few things fixing it up, maybe adding a few bells and whistles to make it sound more like an album and less like just a, a a live thing. That's fine. You know, you want it to sound like an album. You don't have to be tied to the live sound, but the live feel, that's the thing that I really love. The the idea of going in there and making music. I mean, I, I heard somebody say once years ago, I thought this was great. How long does it how long does it take to record 48 minutes of music you know it's like how you know unless you're peter gabriel and you're you know i mean so i'll give him i'll give him that when he made so it took him years or whatever it sound, it's perfect you know that for certain kinds of music uh what trevor horn could make a great album in three years you know uh and and it sounds spotless my records don't sound spotless they sound a little dirty and a little and and if i hear i mean i'll go back and hear a record and go oh wow yeah the the uh the piano kind of or the the symbol kind of you know bled through into the piano track or it it it, it uh, my voice uh maybe made the ribbon press up against the it you know it distorted um you know this is a record i made five years ago and i'll think oh that's all right aretha aretha franklin records she was distorting this the 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 microphone as well so that there's something about that dirt there's something about that that imperfection that's that's mostly those are the kind of records that i love the imperfect ones the ones where you can hear you can hear that uh it was real guys playing it like bring the family by john hyatt i mean uh. i I'm friendly with Nick Lowe because I recorded What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding, his song for the Bodyguard soundtrack, which sold 45 million copies and made Nick, uh, you know, well more, much more than a million dollars or over a million dollars. So he's he's my friend now. If you ever want to become friends with one of your heroes, make him a million bucks accidentally and uh, (laughs) it works really well. But he told me the story, his side of the story of of making Bring the Family uh, the John Hyde album with Ry Cooter and Jim Keltner and, and John Hyde and himself playing bass. Uh, and, you know, first of all, he didn't even own a bass at the time. He had just split up with his uh, with Carleen Carter, and he was kind of down in the dumps. And his manager called and said, you know, they, they want you in L.A. to make this record. And uh, he said, Yeah, I don't want to do it. And his, his manager actually said, I'm going to come over there. I could do it in the English accent. I want to come over there. I'm going to fucking throw you. A- ass on the plane. And so he said, Alright, so he went to the airport, he flew to LA, they took him straight to a music store and bought him a bass, uh, and then went to the studio. And th- there's like one of the greatest bands of all time, which eventually became Little Village, uh, uh, Ry Cooter, Jim Keltner, Niccolo, and the the mighty John Hyatt. And they made that record, I think in a couple of weeks, just boom. And it's one of the greatest records I own. I, I think it's one of the greatest records ever made. The songs, the playing. I love it. It's just perfect. It's just, and it was all, it was just about the, the chemistry of those four guys at that time with those amazing songs that came out of John's, you know, basically re, re uh, not reinventing himself, but. Actually, reconstructing himself as a human being, as a, as a, as a not drunk, drug addicted person, um, you know, uh, he, th- they made that that perfect record. Then they went back in to make the Little Village record, uh, years later, you know, a year later, a couple of years later, and it was great. But you know they took they took a long time and it just didn't have that magic. You know they should have made that record in two in two weeks and that's what Nick said. You know we we spent way too much time. We had way too many opinions and uh, you know way too much input. Let's you know we should have just we should have just done the same thing. So anyway, I like to make long stories long. I don't know if you know. Oh,
0: this is interesting, and I think that you know if you listen to like, have a little faith in me or or uh, like your dad did those mm-hmm. are they're polished but they're scruffy those are there's there's this oh, yeah. right
2: yeah oh god yeah this and the sounds they're they 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 would have been cleaned up if they'd had more time rick sound wouldn't have been you know it wouldn't have had quite that much reverb or it wouldn't have you know the mistakes the 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 the, the imperfections that's what makes a great record the fact that um you know aretha franklin's voice often would um distort you know because she'd be a little too close to the mic and she'd be screaming her head off with that amazing instrument and the the mic just couldn't take it even those big german mics that she was singing into couldn't take it and that's what you know i mean uh take the low um, uh, the weight you know her version of the bands the weight uh uh with with uh, uh, G- uh duane allman playing slide guitar i mean the, through the whole thing she's just destroying that microphone and it's fantastic. It's like the one of the greatest voices in the world going through, you know, a, a a a distorted guitar amp. It's it's I love that. I love, I love the imperfection of of some recorded music.
0: Do you does your ear not permit you to just listen to something and go, oh, that's super cool. Do you always hear the technical elements of it going left or right or too polished or not polished enough?
2: It's hard. That's the I mean, I'm a I'm a huge fan of of music and records. And, you know, I'm a fanboy when I hear a a Jason Isbell record. All I do is just like cry. You know, I mean, the, the first time I hear a Jason Isbell record, I'm a fan at first. I'm certainly I don't listen to like the technical aspect of it. But if if it's recorded in a way that doesn't hit my ear right, that'll throw me off. I'll be drawn to it. But um, so I guess it's the stuff that just that that sounds the most real and emotional and authentic that allows me to get past that. But it as a as a recording artist, as a person who makes records, um, as a singer who sings other people's songs a lot of the time, um, I do have a hard time not listening to a record and thinking, Now, how could I take that song and record it as a Curtis Tiger song and have it sound more like me and and less like, you know, I, I still do that. It's like, you know, I mean, especially with guys that I love, like Jason Isbell or Hayes Carl or or uh, you know, great songwriters, a uh, Randy Newman. You know, I put on a Randy Newman album. I'm thinking, okay, which one? Which one of these songs am I going to put on my next record? You know, or a Tom Waits, the same thing. And with Tom Waits, you really have to like, you have to listen to it ten times just to get through the. <laughs> you know, but in there, underneath all of that stuff is a fantastic song with a great melody he's just really making you work to find it
0: yeah he really started doing that a lot on like mule variations it started to get really distorted but but you—it's almost he can't hide just how brilliant and melodic yeah. those songs are.
2: I, I find it almost well. I find it humorous that he works so hard to hide the fact that he's still one of the greatest songwriters of all time. You know, it's like, oh no, I'm just a, I'm a, I'm an artiste. It's like, no, you're really, you're still the same guy that wrote Foreign Affairs and Blue Valentine and all that, all those. Uh, super uh, uh, emotional uh, romantic songs san diego serenade you're still that guy but you're just uh, you're you're layering th- those crazy industrial um you know junkyard sounds and i love those records but but i am um, once i hear hear one of t- a tom waits record then i have to go back and listen again and try to find that song that i want to i want to sort of sift out of all that noise uh, and and make my
1: own steal from him love is a hunger that burns in my soul but you never notice the pain and love is an anchor that won't let me go I reach out to hold you But you push me away Then you always convince me To stay, stay, baby, stay And I wonder why we hold on With tears in our eyes And I wonder why we have to break down Make things all right and I wonder why I can't sing to tell you goodbye yeah, Yes, I wonder why Now I'm no angel It's my selfish pride But I love you more. Every day And love is an anger And it builds up inside As the tears of frustration Roll down my face Why does love always have to turn out this way And I wonder why we in our eyes And I wonder why we have to break down To make things all right And I wonder why I can't seem to tell you goodbye Yes, I wonder why, I wonder why I wonder why. Oh, baby, I will wonder why. Now, don't you wonder why? Love, love is a hunger.
0: with Elvis Costello even on his early stuff like with Get Happy or you could still tell he was a remarkable singer couldn't you um i i didn't
2: really discover what a great singer elvis costello was um or at least i always thought of elvis costello from the sort of punk aspect of what he did. I knew he wrote great songs, but I just, knew that that sort of sneery way he sang, it didn't occur to me that he was hitting amazing notes and always singing in tune until I saw him live. And that was pretty late. Um, I, I saw him, I think the first time I saw him was like early 88 in Saratoga Springs, New York. After I'd moved to New York, I went to see him. And it was like it, my head exploded because here was this guy who I always thought of as being from the punk rock uh, sort of world. Again, me being tribal and thinking of things in in little uh, packages or in little in little alleys. Um, so what I saw was like an incredible singer and a guy who would put on a show that was every bit as powerful as a Bruce Springsteen concert or a Barbara Streisand concert. You know, it was just like wow it was huge entertainment he worked his ass off to please the audience and i never expected that i expected to kind of sneer and you know his back to the audience and the guy was like you know he he was like sammy davis jr for god's sake he was fantastic um i loved that 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 was one that was a big night for me realizing that you could be you could be sort of, um, I don't know, anti-establishment and also be incredibly entertaining and be really, really good at your at what you do. I don't know that that was a big moment for me. I really loved that concert and I've seen him many times since then. And every time it's just I mean, I don't think he gets nearly enough credit for his live performances. You know, he's I think I mean, I I love I've seen I've seen spring scene a couple of times and it's it's amazing. I think Elvis Costello puts on every bit as uh, amazing a show as as Bruce does
0: and his key also is getting back to what we talked about earlier which is versatility I mean he's almost made an album in every genre
2: yeah that I mean that's he's he's a real inspiration Elvis Costello is uh, for me because he has been fearless and just you know he made the the Record with Burt Bacharach, and he made the you know, he's made records that were basically country records. And even on those old albums, there were he was all over the place as far as style. Um, I didn't realize until I was much older that Taking Liberties, uh, was actually an album of B sides and alternate takes. Um, I thought that was just an Elvis Costello record because I, I did too. <laughs> I
0: was a stupid kid,
2: but um, we were stupid kids, but um, you know, I mean, that album is all over the place. Um, because because it's, you know, obviously it's, it's, it's a bunch of different albums, but uh, I loved that, you know, he, he, uh, um, the, you know, there's a stranger in the house. Nobody's seen his face. It's like, sounds like a George Jones song, you know, um, uh, it, I love him. I, I'm a big Elvis Costello fan. I've, uh, when I finally met Elvis Costello, it was very funny. Um, I, I, he he played in Boise and uh, had, he just played a, I mean, a, amazing show and he had been sick and they had to they had to reschedule it for like a week later and he stayed in town he got he got really sick and instead of going on to the next few dates he just he canceled those dates, stayed in Boise and rescheduled his show. And so by the time he got on stage, I think he played a three hour plus show. It was amazing. Just song after song after song that it was incredible. And then I, I know his bass player, Davey Farragher. he's played on on uh, he played on a record of mine. And he was also you know involved with the uh, the Sons of Anarchy music. He was in that band. And uh, so Davey introduced me to him later that night. And the Elvis Costello said, because I had recorded the first my first jazz record is called Baby Plays Around. And that's named after a song on the record, which is an an Elvis Costello song, as far as I was concerned, because it was on his album Spike, I believe. And uh, um, he said he said, Oh, Curtis, good to meet you. Thank you for recording my wife's song, my ex wifes song, he said. And because he wrote it with Cat O'Reardon. I don't actually. I think you're supposed to pronounce that kosher. Anyway, um, Kate Reardon. Cato Reardon. He wrote it with her, but he gives her credit for it, which I always thought was really. Uh, I thought that was very generous of him. Thanks for recording my ex-wife's song. I don't know <laughs> why why I went off on that tangent, but uh, that was that was pretty exciting to meet him for the first time.
0: What's it like being friends with Nick? I mean, he seems like an intimidating presence to me. Um, when I first
2: met him. I was a little intimidated by him, I have to say. Um, He was, um, he's, I think he was much more intimidating when he was younger. I mean, he was a, a, he was speaking of a punk rocker, you know, I mean, he had real, he had real attitude. He tells stories now about the things that he used to do and say to people. And he kind of, he almost cringes because he's a lovely gentleman. He is a a gentleman, first and foremost. He's very kind. He's always been very nice to me. And of course, again, I accidentally made him a million dollars. So, you know, he he, he's going to be a little bit kinder to me. But he's as as we've known each other, he's he's really grown warmer and warmer toward me. I think a big part of it was that um, he had a kid. He had a, a son about 16 years ago. Um, And I had a daughter at the time already. So I found myself talking to Nick about, you know, about having a baby. Um, And I think he, suddenly I was a contemporary of his because we were dads, you know, and that, that had a lot to do with our, um, with our becoming closer. I'm going to move out of the sun here. Uh, The fact that we both had kids had, had a lot to do with, with Nick and I becoming, um you know closer friends because he was like oh yeah so i mean how does this work i mean i i I, to be talking about you know fatherhood with with you know my my punk rock idol the guy who the guy who produced the first english punk rock record uh, the damned or the one that was you know the first one to come out the Damned's first record to be talking to him about you know you know, I don't know, Roy, Roy is doing this and well Ruby did this and you know that's my daughter's name Ruby and his son is Roy, who's now a fine uh, drummer, Roy, uh, Roy Lowe is a uh, Royston Lowe is his his full name is, has turned out to be quite a drummer. He's uh, in his late teens now and uh, following in his pop's footsteps. But yeah, anyway, Nick Lowe is, lovely he's kind he's funny he's fun to have a drink with he's uh we've uh, we've <laughs> we've had a few drinks together over the years. I don't see him nearly as much as I'd like to anymore just because I mean because of pa- the pandemic it's been i mean who, who do you see anymore it's really uh it's a shame but uh, every time we get together it's it's lovely. his wife has has been uh, a, a nice uh she sort of has brought us together too I mean I think just as in his older in his later years, he's made these records that are so wise and so relaxed and so brilliant i mean uh, the, the re- his records since the since like you know since since the turn of the century have been you know are st- are some of my favorite records in my collection and uh, um i think being married and having a kid has has certainly had something to do with that they've uh, they've they've taken a bit of the uh, the 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 uh, the word the the cantankerous or the 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 naughty punk rock boy out of him and and uh, just uh, left this lovely english gentleman
0: yeah and guys like graham parker or costello or nick lowe they aged beautifully. They aged, right? Like artistically, they just aged the way you're supposed to age in music, I think.
2: Agree. Yeah. Graham Parker, I think is somebody who doesn't get nearly enough attention. God, I love Graham Parker. I, we follow each other on Twitter and that's, I mean, to, to actually get a, get a tweet from, from Graham Parker is, is, just makes the the schoolboy punk rocker in me just fly it's so and he seems like such a lovely guy and he still makes fantastic music still still uh, i saw him play solo in a club in in new york it's been a while now it's probably 20 20 years ago but i saw him play just outside of new york city and it was it was extraordinary just him playing those amazing songs
0: i also i have to throw in joe jackson as well he to me he's one of the those four so it's low parker yeah. costello and jackson
2: sure sure yeah what the, was your take on him i i love joe jackson i've recorded uh, i recorded uh, um um uh, fools in love for my third jazz album um we did a um you know that's you know he he does it kind of like a you know a a uh a, a quasi uh, reggae thing where we did it. We did a it's a swinging. I mean, it's one it's a barn burner on stage. I love I love Joe Jackson and um, he has just done exactly what he wanted to do. He's one of those guys that's just like, well, fuck it. I'm 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 Joe Jackson. I'm just going to make music and uh, I'm sure it's frustrating uh, that he can't sell his, you know, his classical record to a lot of people, but at the same time, he's not going to not do it just because he can't sell it. And uh, yeah, he's, he's great. He, I think of, of all of those four um, of that group, you're talking about is the most cantankerous. (laughs) He's, I mean, he's been, he's nice to me. Um, I've met him a few times. We were managed by the same guy for a while, but, but he does, you know, I mean, He's left entire countries because he couldn't smoke. I think that's a that's a guy with a strong personality. It's like, all right, fuck this, I'm leaving America. I can't smoke here anymore. And then he went to England and then they changed their laws. Fuck this, I'm moving. You know, that's a I think that's a, <laughs> talk about punk rock.
0: Yeah. Age has not mellowed him. And I I'm sort of thinking about the idea that you as a young man seemed very self-directed and confident in the choices that you made and I wonder I mean, it's cool to have Nick Lowe as a sounding board or a Brecker to give you um, a, a word of advice that really changed your life, yeah. but you, it seems like you had a hunch about these things anyway. Were you always an independent thinker, and did you feel, were you getting support from from family, or was it always just you? Were you always sort of like a monolithic entity? <laughs> I'm a monolith. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I had
2: support from my mom. You know, my mom was she was a single mom raising two kids, no money, but somehow somehow she always managed to make sure I had a drum kit if I needed it. You know, I had grandparents too. We had, you know, relations, we had aunts and uncles that would would chip in, but there I always was able to follow that that muse, that musical muse uh, that 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 led me. So, you know, I do I do owe a lot to my mom just saying, "Okay, yeah, you can your band can practice in the basement. Sure. I'll, uh, you know, I'll, I'll try to ignore the noise. And uh, so I, I did have support, but I was, you know, be, because I was the oldest of two kids and my brother was six and a, is six and a half years younger than I, um, I, I was, you know, I ran my own life. I, I took care of him. My mom worked a lot. Uh, I definitely had to grow up quickly. Um, and so I knew that if I didn't get it done, it wasn't gonna get done. Uh, I knew that I, if I wanted to play music, if I wanted to learn how to play music, I was just gonna have to do it, uh, and so I did. So I guess yeah. I mean, I I, I have always been focused and self-directed. I mean, it. it it didn't get me very good grades in high school. You know, I mean, I I I flunked uh, music theory my senior year of high school. I, I how, how does a, a jazz major do that? I mean, it's just, but I was busy, you know, I was busy. I had a rock, you know, I had a punk rock band that was playing Fridays and Saturdays. And then I was going to Gene Harris's jam sessions, Gene Harris being the, the legendary jazz pianist that happened to move to Boise, Idaho when I was a kid. And I would go to his jam sessions on Tuesday night. Uh, you know, I I don't have time to do homework when I'm, when I'm playing saxophone at a jam session with one of the greatest jazz pianists in the world. I mean, um, but I did, you know, I did make the time to, to practice my horns and to, and to, uh, you know, learn songs on the drums, learn, you know, learn U2 songs and uh, Strangler songs on the drums. I, I I I focused myself and, and I didn't I didn't realize that I always felt like I was just, you know, lazy and I like to sleep in. But you know, I had a paper out. I got up every damn morning and and did that. I mean, after playing a gig and that, that ended at 1 30, I'd get up at 5 30 and do the paper out because I had to have some money to buy drumsticks. And uh, then I realized, you know, I I went to college for a year. I got I basically lost my scholarship because I was, again, doing too many things and not paying attention to what I was supposed to be paying attention to uh, as a student. and so I went back to Boise and I I, I got into a really successful band and I kind of rose to the top of the Boise, Idaho music scene, which, you know, wasn't very big, but I was making more money than anybody in town, which was like, you know, 400 bucks a week, which was massive for a kid like me. And yeah, 18, 19 years old. And I realized that I was playing with musicians, a lot of whom were very uh, jaded. They were pissed off. That they were in Boise they didn't ever get that record deal they they didn't ever you know make it to where they wanted to make it and I realized oh I gotta get out of here I gotta leave here um this was before the internet this was before you know uh, going viral you couldn't stay in Boise Idaho and expect to to find your way toward a record deal or to you know toward you know some sort of success beyond playing in bars and uh and playing for people who really just wanted to dance to your to your music. So I I went to L.A. I looked at L.A. I couldn't figure out how I would break into that scene. I went to San Francisco. I couldn't find a scene. I went to Seattle. It was pre it was kind of pre grunge. I and plus that wasn't really what I was doing. Um, I couldn't figure out where to move. And a buddy of mine said, hey, um, I'm going to New York. He was he was he actually sold potatoes for Simplot. Uh, He was a, a very Idaho job and he was going for meetings. He said, you can crash in my hotel room. Come check out New York oh I never I never thought of that I'm basically New York to me was you know episodes of Barney Miller and uh, and uh, Kojak that was New York to me so I I flew out uh, flew into LaGuardia airport and immediately I just felt it it was like yeah yeah I get this got on a bus uh, rode into town went to the uh, the hotel there I am on Sixth Avenue and I thought This is it. This is where this is where I'm going to do it. And my friend and his buddy who lived in New York took me down to Bleecker Street in uh, in the village. We went to the Rock and Roll Cafe and we heard the Robert Ross Blues Band. And Robert Ross had a had a bass player called Charlie Torres in his band. It was a little trio, very cool little blues band. And I was playing a lot of blues then played saxophone and, and uh, mostly saxophone. I I'd, I'd, le- I'd was in a blues band in Boise and I heard this, uh, I heard this little, uh, um, this little blues trio play. And I thought I could play with them. And that, this is New York city and it's, you know, on the, in in a cool little blues bar. And then Rick Derringer got up and sat in with them because Charlie Torres played in Rick Derringer's band as well. And I thought, holy shit, I could play with a band and Rick Derringer if I just lived here and that was it. So I went home. To, uh, I went home to Boise. I formed a band specifically to make enough money to, to, to have a nest egg, to move to New York city. And a year later I moved to New York. I, 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 rode in my friend, Todd Campiano's Honda Civic. He was going back to, for his senior year at Brown in, in, uh, in Providence, Rhode Island. He dropped me off on the upper west or the upper east side uh, at a place where I was going to live for a, a month. Uh, and and went on his way. I had my saxophone and a bag of clothes, and that was it. And uh, there I was. So anyway, that was a, a long answer to your question. Was I focused? And yeah, I was focused on playing music. I didn't move there to get a record deal because I didn't really know how to get a record deal, but I knew I wasn't going to get it at home. So what I wanted to do was play with better mu- or musicians, better musicians. I'm going to say it. I mean, there, there were great musicians here in Boise, but I knew there were better musicians in uh, and more famous musicians um, and musicians that I'd heard on record in New York City. And so I went there and it was a it was a really smart move because uh, and that's how I broke in was going to blues clubs with my saxophone and uh, and I would I, no. There, there were hardly any saxophone players that would go to blues clubs. They were all going to jazz jam sessions, but I was, a, I'm a blues saxophone player. I, I'm a, I i can sing jazz, but I, I've never really been much of a, a jazz saxophone player, but I can, you know, I can play jazz, saxophone like BB King plays guitar. That's, that's what I wanted. That's how I've always wanted to play sax. So I went to blues uh, jam sessions and I'd get hired by, you know, some guy to play a five hour gig at the sidewalk cafe in the, in the East village. And, uh, about hour 3 he'd run out of songs and so I'd step up and sing a song and then the next day I'd go back and say remember when remember that was me playing sax and singing last night I have a band too will you hire me and they'd say oh sure now I didn't have a band I would just I lied and I would have to go get a band together and <laughs> and um, and uh, so anyway that was that was how I did it I just I'd always see ways to go and I'd just go there you know because I I had to if, if I didn't do that, I wasn't going to get to play music. I was just going to be sitting at home watching David Letterman. And, and you know, that was fun, but I needed to play music. And so there was always that that drawing me and pulling me along. Um, and, and it certainly did help to be a, a, a kid of a, of a of a single mother who wasn't wasn't able to be around all that much. And and, uh, you know, I had to know how to cook. I had to know how to cook food and I had to know how to make enough money to uh, to get saxophone reeds and and drumsticks
0: when you when you think about you know the future and you think about like well what projects do i really want to do now because it seems like um you know you can do anything you want really ultimately you always you always could um but when you think about what are the things you really want to do because i love this new album because it really feels like it it sort of reinterprets your career um, in a, yeah. a totally totally different way and it also feels like a nice button for that period of time yeah do you think like like what comes next for you and do you think like is there a I'm not saying are you, are you gonna make a punk record but are you are you thinking about something different are you thinking about going somewhere uh, yeah. this record that's really
2: a, well a, a, a an interesting way to put it and I hadn't really thought of it that way but this record is kind of a button it's it's 30 years after my first record um, I have re-recorded a few of the songs from that first record, kind of the hits from that first record, and then songs, other songs from other records of mine that we do, that sound completely different live. That's the whole point of this record was, you know, 30 years later to look back for the first time. Because I've always been, you know, people have always said, Oh, you know, maybe you should re-record. I wonder why. I think, no, what the hell would I want to do that for? I did that 30 years ago. I've never done anything again. That's what that's my why my career is so weird, is because I never do anything twice, or I try not to anyway. But it seemed like a good time to do it. 30 years, I'm 56 years old now, for God's sake. You know, wh- why not look back? And um, but it is, it is kind of a button. It's like, okay, where do you go from there? That's 30 years. What's the next thing? I mean, I've never made a sing, you know, like a real strummy singer songwriter record. I play a lot of guitar and sing. I stand here in my kitchen, um, and do songs from my kitchen, my live stream show every Wednesday for the last, what, nine months or so I've been doing that. I, I, I should have started it earlier in the pandemic. Um, but then again, the pandemic just keeps on giving, doesn't it? It just it never <laughs> seems to stop, no, so, it doesn't stop. Um, but but I, you know, I just play guitar and sing my songs and sing other people's songs and, uh, you know, so maybe there's a record like that that would be really easy to make and fun to make. Um, I, I I also have an idea for touring songs from my kitchen, which is me with my laptop and a screen behind me, and you know, basically, I did this once, and I had just had a big screen, and it was a picture of my kitchen behind me, just like you're looking at here on this <laughs> Zoom call, and uh, so I think that that's a possibility. That I really would like to. I've gotten to the point where I can play guitar well enough, and that's not good. I'm not saying I'm a good guitar player, but I can play well enough that I can, you know, I can get around any song I really need to. Um, But I also would love to make an orchestral record. You know, I mean, the the other end of things, I would love to make a record um, of great songs with a big orchestra. I I sing with a lot of orchestras um, in in Europe, especially. But I mean, I've done it here, too, where I have I have a bunch of really great arrangements of songs from my different records. Um, I would love to do that. I made a big band record uh, about six, seven years ago. That was my last uh, studio record before gentlemen with this line. Anyway, I, it, um, I've done that, but an orchestral record would be amazing. The problem is it costs a lot of money to do that when you're yeah. paying, when you're paying 60 people or 70 people to play with you, it's,
0: it's kind of hard to do it. Guerrilla style. <laughs> like I do. Yeah. Um, I mean, cause I was going to say, you could basically set a few mics up in your kitchen. You can record the kitchen album yeah, in your kitchen. I,
2: I really could. Yeah. And, um, actually let's do that right now. Here, <laughs> let's do it <laughs> do on it zoom. <laughs> you've got we you've got the, the the red lights on. Let's just do it here, and uh, we'll 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 uh, we'll release it as a podcast. Yeah, I could I could and and um, I've been so I've been thinking about that a lot. That will, however, confound the publicists and my manager and the record companies again, or whoever, and the the writers, because I will have you know I will have moved toward this thing. I've spent the last twenty years you know sort of creating my reputation as a jazz artist who does weird songs who does songs by pop and country and soul and punk artists you know as jazz tunes and then here I come out with an, a solo acoustic record I mean that I mean I'm real I, I'm I guess it fits me it fits me let's let's go And <laughs> it's then, kind of what and, you do <laughs> and then there's the and then there's the polka record and that's uh you know and the the polka, it's kind of a polka opera idea I've had for a long time.
0: I'm i am kidding, of course. I'm just kidding about that. But, but it would be interesting. I mean, <laughs> I think, um, but I think that's what you do. Like you, in many ways, it's like you continue to not be able to be pigeonholed. So I think like the Kitchen Album would be a perfect curveball. Yeah. Um, that really wouldn't be a curveball at all.
2: Right, right. If you throw enough curves, they end up just being fastballs. That's right. I don't know if that didn't... That, I'm going to have to work. I'm going to have to workshop that idea, but uh, yeah, it's, and, and you stick around long enough. I have found, um, people start to take you serious, more seriously. People start to give you respect. I mean, I've been here for 30 years. I'm still making records. I'm still touring. I haven't given up. I haven't stopped. I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not on Letterman and, and the tonight show anymore. I'm not, you know, I'm not riding around in big tour buses and, and, standing on stages with elton john anymore but um i'm still here and i have found especially in europe where i have a a a much higher profile than i do in the united states i have found that i have i am achieving that sort of elder statesman status now i mean they in england they call me jazz legend curtis stigers and i'm like no 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 i'm not a jazz legend but keep saying that that's good Uh, you know so they you know i i have it's gotten to the point where it's like, oh, yes, Curtis Stigers is here. It's like, wow, there was a a big chunk of time between the, that first two years of my career and now where you wouldn't even, you know, you, you wouldn't even let me in the door. And now you're like, oh, yes, jazz legend Curtis Stigers is here. Like, Well, OK, I'll take it. So it, if you just stick around, if you don't die, knock wood, uh, you, you can you can find your way to that. Uh, to that, uh, that status and get away with a little more murder than you could when you were a kid.
0: Skiing in that conversation. I wasn't that far off. Curtis Steigers, great guy. New album, This Life, is out right now. Get it. Uh, Curtis is touring the UK as we speak. He'll be back in the US in the spring. CurtisSteigers.com is where you need to go to find out where he'll be and when he's coming to your town. And if you want to find out what's going on with me, AlexGreenOnline.com is where you need to go to find out. All the latest. I want to come to your town too. You just gotta invite me. I'm like a vampire. You gotta invite me in. I'll show up. I'll do a I'll do a podcast from your kitchen. Follow me on Twitter at Embers Editor, follow me on Instagram at Embers Podcast. Do email me if you have a query, an idea, a thought, something you wanna tell me. Editor at Stereo Embers Magazine.com. Don't forget Stereo Embers the Podcast is available. On all podcast platforms, how can you forget? I tell you every week. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, rate, and review, and tell all your friends. We would appreciate it. Don't forget to visit Bombshell Radio at BombshellRadio.com. I think that's all the businessy stuff I have for you this week. Let's close the show with a longer listen to Curtis Steiger's Keep Me From the Cold. Enjoy it, and thank you as always for listening. To Stereo Embers, the podcast, only right here on Bombshell Radio.
1: When the snows come And the wind blows cold Will you hold me Like you'll never let go Will you kiss me so sweetly And promise you love me so Cause I have wandered through the mountains I have searched the streets below and All I ever really wanted is someone to hold me and to keep me from the cold And when the night falls and you're fast asleep I'll watch over you And i pray your heart to keep So you can sleep easy You know you can't count on me Cause I have wandered through the mountains I have searched the streets below But all I ever really wanted was someone to need me To keep me from the cold Maybe keep me from the cold Now darling, when you're sleeping Am I with you in your dreams Do I hold and dance you through the night. And when the nightmares come, will you let me be the one who kisses you, and tells you it's alright? And in the morning, as the light creeps. In. I will hold you As you're slowly waking And i kiss you so softly And promise I'll never go As I have wandered through the mountains I have searched the streets below, but all I ever really wanted was someone to need me and to keep me from the cold. I have wandered through the mountains, I have searched the streets below, but all I ever really wanted was someone to love me. I want you to love me And keep me from the cold Baby, keep me from the cold Keep me from the cold You're all I ever wanted Baby, keep me from Keep me from the cold.